Hello, and welcome to the EPC's fourth episode of our podcast series, where we delve deeper into EU affairs and connect the dots between politics, policies, and people. My name is Rebecca Kastermans, and I am the head of communications at the European Policy Center. The day after the European Parliament elections, our senior policy analysts gave their own take on the outcome of the elections at an EPC post-election briefing. Karina Stracula, head of the European Politics and Institution Program, presented a bird's eye view, signaling that although the tectonic shift to the radical populist right didn't materialize in the end, there's a clear political realignment beyond the traditional left-right paradigm. Yanis Emnoulidis, our Director of Studies, had a closer look at the different options for a new coalition agreement in the Parliament and at the race for the EU top jobs. And finally, Chief Executive Fabian Zuleik analyzed how the elections went down in the UK and what the victory of the Brexit Party and the catastrophic loss of the Conservatives means for Brexit. Sweet uh, and short uh, for uh, uh, some of us who have watched the, the results unfold uh, and the results coming in until the uh, early hours uh, of the morning. Um, as, as you say, Fabian, uh, for the large part, I would uh, what has transpired uh, had, has been pre predicted. But we have also seen a number of, uh, of uh, surprises, some more pleasant uh, than, than others. Look, we have uh, long moaned about the EP elections being uh, second-order uh, uh, national elections uh, on account of them being less important uh, for the composition of the executive and of the uh, policy agenda uh, in the EU, but, but also because voters found the consequences of their uh, European vote difficult to discern. If anything, we have so far looked at uh, European elections as, uh, as a rehearsal of national politics with campaigns focused mainly on national rather than uh, European uh, concerns and preferences. And we have put the repeatedly lower turnout uh, in, uh, in these elections uh, compared to national elections on the back of the, uh, of precisely on the back of this Nebenwallen nature of the uh, EP electoral contest. The prevalent impression that there was little at stake in the EP vote uh, has also led us in the past to conclude that European citizens would make different party choices than in a first order context. For example, they, would, uh, they could withdraw support from governing parties to signal their um, disapproval of the government, knowing that such a warning would not in fact overturn power at the national level. Or they could vote uh, with the heart that is sincerely instead of strategically, by defecting from a, from a larger party and choosing a smaller but attractive political party without fearing that in so doing they would waste their vote. Either way, vote switching would mean that major governing parties would lose ground in European elections to opposition smaller parties, uh, often new and more radical. Now, the outcome of, the, uh, of this round of European Parliament elections has challenged some of this conventional wisdom. And arguably the biggest surprise in a positive sense, um, as you all know by now, has been the turnout, which for the first time in 20 years uh, has actually increased, reaching, uh, according to the latest numbers, 48.6%. 
this spells uh, good news uh, for the um, standing of the EP as, as an institution that derives its legitimacy from, uh, from these direct um, elections. Could also spell good news for the legitimacy of the new commission president, provided, of course, that he or she actually comes from among the candidates who have competed in this vote for this post, and could bode well also for turnout in national uh, elections, uh, expected uh, in the next period, for example, in countries like Greece, Poland, Denmark, and Portugal, because research shows that participation in any elections at whichever um, level socializes voter voters into the habit uh, of, um, of voting, so they are likely to exercise that right also when the next opportunity um, presents itself. The opposite, by the way, is also true, meaning that abstention in one election can depress participation in the next one. So this development, whereby turnout has now finally increased uh, in European elections, gives some hope that the trend of decreasing participation from 68% in the first pan-European vote held in nine member states of the then European uh, community to 43.3% in 2014 uh, in elections held across 28 member states can be reversed. And I made this broad east-west distinction because in the past, contributing to this sinking trend has been to a lesser degree Fail, falling turnout in individual countries and more the changing composition of the EU with um, consecutive or progressive rounds of enlargement, particularly to some post-communist countries, weighing heavily down uh, on the overall participation uh, rate. And indeed, if we look at the results now, the Central Eastern European countries, or you know, let's say the newer uh, member states, has seen the largest increase in turnout, up to 36.3%, which represents a third more than what was last time. So this has probably helped a lot to raise uh, overall turnout uh, in these elections. Countries where the EP elections have coincided with other um, votes, uh, referendums, and uh, uh, or where the, um, the vote was mandatory also saw very high levels of participation, except in Ireland, by the way, here. Has the Spitzenkandidaten process helped with turnout? Well, maybe. Maybe in, in the Netherlands, where Timmermans' party, as we know, uh, has done particularly well. But there is little evidence otherwise uh, or elsewhere um, and so far to suggest that uh, the rise can be attributed to, to the lead candidate's uh, process. For the most part, though, what seems to have boosted people's participation is frustration with national politics. The vote was certainly a referendum on national politics in countries uh, like France, uh, uh, Romania, Greece, uh, and the UK. Uh, but it was less so a protest vote or less a desire to punish the incumbent government in Bulgaria, in Austria, in Hungary or Poland, where the leading party has actually um, consolidated power. So even if turnout has been high, uh, we've seen a lot of support for radicals. In the run-up to these elections, there had been plenty of speculation about a, a far-right surge. So the fact that radical national parties had reaped now some uh, rewards in individual uh, member states is, is, is not exactly surprising. With, we had expected them to perform well in countries like Hungary, like Poland, but they have scored particularly big in France, 
uh, in Belgium, in the UK. Uh, in fact, Brexit parties uh, now is the biggest single party in the EP uh, together with the German CDU. At the same time, we should also keep in mind that uh, radical parties have lost some ground, more than 1.5% in countries like Bulgaria, like Denmark, like Austria, Hungary, the Netherlands, France, and Greece. So overall, a mixed bag of, uh, of fortunes for these parties uh, in the end. Ta taken together, we are looking at an average of between 20 and 25% uh, in electoral success for the far-right forces, uh, which, yes, uh, it is a record, it is a high score uh, for sure, but not really the populist tsunami that we have been warned about. And their gains need to be put into perspective, because, of course, uh, you've heard this before, the constructive pro-European parties uh, belonging to the EPP, SND, ALDE, uh, and the Greens uh, will remain a majority in the new assembly. True, as expected, uh, the EPP and SND have lost many seats, um, some 75, I believe, uh, between them. And for the first time, they will not be in a position to uh, form uh, alone a majority. We had been expecting this uh, ba uh, based on a pre-election forecast. This enhances the cloud of, uh, of other party groups, especially the Liberals and the Greens, which have, uh, in fact, done exceptionally well. The Greens have outperformed the, the forecast uh, with uh, 68 seats, an increase of 16 seats uh, from, uh, from, from before. And obviously, those are the best results that they've had uh, since 1989, uh, a historic uh, win, as it has been uh, referred to. So much so that if we are to speak of waves, we can safely speak of a green wave this time around. Examples of countries where they've done, uh, where they've had the biggest wins, uh, Germany, 20 seats, the second place and clearly uh, killing the socialists. Um, second place in Ireland, um, they've done also well in the Netherlands, in Denmark, in Sweden and Finland, but also in France um, and the UK. It's interesting here to note that the only Central Eastern European country in which the Greens have done well is Lithuania, uh, which will send two seats to Brussels. But uh, for the other countries of the region, uh, there's no seats for, 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 for Green parties. Indeed, environmental issues, including climate change, um, has been the, um, the top subject in nearly every country which uh, has participated uh, in the recent European citizens' consultations if, um, process, if you are aware of it, and clearly sing, uh, signals a strong appetite for change in this field, but also, uh, I would say, a recognition that the EU uh, should be leading in this area. It is also interesting to remember uh, here that the Green parties had started as anti-establishment parties and have transformed themselves into a radical form of establishment. And arguably this has um, had a lot to do with the fact that they have worked and called for changes that could go through the system instead of sitting um, uh, on the fringes or challenging the existing structures. So here maybe there is a little lesson uh, for, the, for the radicals uh, um, or populist parties um, to learn. Liberals have also seen their numbers uh, go up. Uh, ALDE, together with Unmarche in France and USR Plus in uh, Romania, have secured now, uh, according to the latest uh, figures, 108 seats, which is an increase of 39 from last time. And by the way, the 39 incre increase is, uh, is almost the same 
as the loss incurred by EPP uh, and um, uh, SND individually. So EPP lost 37 and uh, SND lost 38, um, the Liberals won 39. But Macron's party, uh, La Republican March, is by far the biggest contributor to this gain uh, with 21 seats. So his participation uh, in, in, uh, in a potential coalition will probably come uh, with some conditions attached. Of course, as a side note here, Macron has also bef been flirting with some of the most uh, powerful SND uh, parties, uh, PD in Italy, PSOE in, uh, in Spain, PS in Portugal. So maybe he will want his party to become the centerpiece uh, of, a, of a new alliance altogether. It remains to be seen. Uh, even if he did come second um, in France, uh, and this could count as, as a personal defeat, uh, in a sense, and, uh, and might affect uh, uh, his bargaining power in the end. Things remain a little bit fluid about which way he will decide to, to go. So we seem to be witnessing overall um, a new political alignment um, in which we shift away from the old left right divide towards a, a dimension that is defined more in cultural rather than economic terms. Um, some have labeled it as nationalist versus cosmopolitan dimension in which the Greens become the biggest um, left-wing party and the populist radical uh, right uh, becomes the main right-wing party. But of course, experience also tells us that the radical nationalist Eurosceptic uh, populist uh, forces uh, are a motley crew and tend to find each other's company hard to bear. Uh, so it would not be surprising if in the end they do remain divided among them themselves and across uh, different EP party groups. In the past, uh, uh, research data shows us that they have demonstrated low cohesion rate and anyway, when it comes to uh, legislating, to actual uh, decision-making, the composition of the majority in the EP uh, changes on an issue-by-issue -issue basis. Um, and these parties have contrasting uh, views in many regards, from the economy to Russia to, to how to limit migration and so on. They also have strong ego leaders uh, and have previously looked at the EP as a cash machine uh, and as a platform for, uh, you know, uh, for making grand speeches and and for uh, YouTube promotion rather than uh, necessarily as um, as a place uh, where they should write reports and opinions, uh, push uh, amendments and uh, and win votes. That said, if the populists do manage to form a larger party group like Salvini attempts uh, at present, they could significantly enhance their clout and could seek or arrive in a position where they could. Uh, block crucial decisions. If all these parties decided to join ECR, uh, ENF, uh, EFDD, and that's a big if, they could become basically the second largest party in the EP. So that's not little. Some of the key decisions in the um, pipeline include finding a parliamentary majority for a lead candidate the Spitzenkandidaten. And the European Council, which uh, under the Lisbon Treaty has the right to nominate a candidate, has already declared that the choice of nominee will not be automatic. In fact, the distribution of all uh, main posts in the new EU uh, leadership configuration, which normally takes place as part of a bigger package in which the various groups and parties try to find uh, balance, is likely to prove laborious this time around um, given the, the wins of, uh, of these parties, radical 
parties. And an influx of a large number of Europhobic members might also give a harsher and more controversial tone to debates in the new assembly. This is already an issue with studies showing that the average populist content of political leaders' speeches across the political spectrum has doubled in recent years, bringing political incorrectness out of the closet and shifting the terms of debate on sensitive and important issues. This can be a slippery slope to undermining fundamental values and principles. And here, I would think that we need to, to go back to the EU anthem, uh, which suggests, uh, um, excuse my, my German pronunciation, oh, Freunde, nicht diese Tone. Uh, so no more this tone. Uh, we need a change of tone, a more pleasant and, and, and joyful one. And I think uh, um, the, the events, the developments from last night uh, are a good reminder of that. So, if radical populist nationalist parties prove obstructive, all the other parties will have to pull together in order to keep the EU functioning. If they don't, member governments will likely start bypassing parliaments and doing intergovernmental deals. Finally, a strong electoral showing of these parties at EU level could give uh, them also a boost and strengthen their confidence in the national arena of politics uh, in countries like Poland, uh, Italy, France, uh, and, and, and so on. This could help the liberal camp obstruct the EU's work through the European Council. But overall, I think the main story is actually one of fragmentation, right across from left to center to right, what some have called the Dutchification of European politics with more parties and more coalition options. This mirrors, uh, uh, in fact, uh, the increased fragmentation and volatility in national po political systems across the EU. Fragmentation not only in terms of uh, the number of parties, but also in terms of their relative size. Few party systems still have uh, one, let alone two parties, uh, that gain more than a third of the vote. Most parties today are uh, medium-sized, which changes a lot of the dynamics between and within political blocks. And the same goes for volatility, which is very high, both at the aggregate level, but even more so at the individual level, uh, and taking place not only within political blocks, but also across them. So the politics of tomorrow uh, is likely to be very different from, from the pop politics of today. And speaking of the future, and this is my last point, the other important so story that I think emerges from, from these elections has to do with what uh, I, I would call the, a lack of imagination. Um, so far, especially in Western Europe, um, we, 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 we spoke of a lack of, imag uh, of imagination that the worst can happen that the radical authoritarian nationalist forces could do a lot of harm to, um, to our systems, to our ways of life, to our fundamentals. And this lack of imagination has a lot to do with our faith in democratic institutions, in democratic values, and in our support for democracy. That gave us confidence that things could not go bad. And we don't need to think about things getting, going bad. Yet, the radical right continues to push ahead and to build strongholds, including in some key member states, uh, as well as in the younger and more fragile democracy of Central Eastern Europe. But our lack of imagination goes beyond our ability to imagine the worst. We also su suffer, I would, uh, I, I would argue, from a lack of imagination about the, the best. Uh, today, people fear not the past, as Krushtev, Ivan Krushtev says, but the future. So how can parties imagine a less scary future and restore people's concerns? Uh, 
People clearly want change, but their revolutionary spirit is currently playing out without a revolutionary program. We need to get our creative juices running and be brave in coming up with a vision for the future that provides the 21st century appropriate ways to translate our democratic uh, goals into practice within national context, but also through continued European cooperation. We cannot leave it up to the radicals to do that. As uh, Ivan Krashtev argues, they don't fantasize about changing societies. They don't imagine people in terms of what they can become. They like them just the way they are. Empowering people without any common project is the ambition of the new populism, but it will not be enough. So I guess my final question is, will the mainstream rise to the occasion and imagine the future? Thank you, Corinna. Um, well, that's a, a good question to hand over to Yanis. Uh, what will happen next? Uh, will the mainstream rise to this occasion and what does it all mean? both for the workings of the parliament, but then also for the top jobs, for the selection of the new leadership, uh, including in what time frame are we talking about? Janis. Thank you. Uh, good morning to all of you. Um, yes, what I want to do over the next 15, max 20 minutes, is to look into the future. Um, if we, when we were witnessing all the excitement ahead of the EP elections, um, we were asking ourselves what will happen thereafter. And what we can expect is the period now, the upcoming days, weeks, months, will be at least as exciting as some of the discussions we've had before the European Parliament elections. Um, we have a heavy schedule in front of us, a lot of decisions which have to be taken by different EU institutions, member states, heads of state and government. Um, there's a need to set the course uh, for the next years to live up, what Corinna was saying about uh, the need to live up to the expectations which are not necessary. Um, so we have um, a lot of uncertainties, uh, many unpredictabilities. I think we will also witness some surprises. We've done that also in the past. Um, and um, there are a lot of speculation which are now out there. I will try to also add my speculations to that, uh, but trying to also shed some light in what I consider to be the key issues, topics, which we now need to discuss. With respect to coalition building, um, it's obvious, and um, Corinna highlighted that, that yes, we have a more fragmented European Parliament. We will have more fragmented political party systems in many member states, and that's reflected also in the outcome of this EP elections. Um, but if you look at how many groups, political groups, which is not clear how they will form, who will be included in which groups, and the number of groups actually we will not have a more fragmented European Parliament. What we will be having is the fact that the two big parties, both the Conservatives and the Socialists, have suffered a good number of losses with respect to their seats in the European Parliament. And there is no clear majority, and I think that is important uh, for the EPP if you compare it to where we were five years ago. Um, so these two parties, the two big parties, cannot form a grand coalition. That's not possible on the base of the numbers. And they will need a three or four party coalition in order to form a majority in the European Parliament. That is very different from the situation in 2014. When there it was clear that the Conservatives and the Socialists in the European Parliament, the EPP and the SND, had a clear majority in the House. And that was clear on the Sunday, Monday of the elections, after the elections. Today, this is not clear which also makes a difference with respect to the fact that when the European Council comes together on Wednesday, 
um, for a dinner, they will not have this uh, clear composition uh, of the European Parliament in place. Um, today, I think what we will witness, and we're already seeing that happen, happening, is a much longer process of forming a coalition. This will take some time. Um, I, the relative winner, meaning the EPP and Manfred Weber, will be starting and to form that kind of a coalition. But as I said, it will be very complicated and would be very cumbersome um, to find and forge compromises. And when we talk about compromises, I think there are three levels of compromises that they will have to reach. One is on issues of policy. They will have to find common, uh, common grounds on policy issues. They will also discuss and find common ground on issues related to more institutional um, issues, like, for example, the issue of transnational list. Is this something they will discuss? Do they have to find an agreement on? And then, last but not least, they will have to find a compromise on all the personnel issues, which is probably the, the most difficult, at the, but it comes more at the end, although nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. My expectation is, personally, that I think that uh, the attempt will be made of the pro-European, pro-liberal forces, uh, meaning the, the, the EPP, the SND, the Liberals, and the Greens to form a broad coalition. That is my personal, that has been my expectation before uh, the outcome of the of EP elections were clear, and I still think that this will be the case this time around for two main reasons. One is that the um, strong anti EU anti-illiberal signal that would give in terms of showcasing that the anti-forces are not able to determine European politics. I think that's a strong signal that will come out of this kind of a coalition. And second, that it would reassure a comfortable majority in the European Parliament. Because beyond the decisions which now need to be taken in the upcoming weeks and months, the question is also how will the majority in the next European Parliament be formed to be reassuring enough to be able to have a majority that will be able to get things through in, again, a more fragmented European Parliament. I don't think that we that there is a chance for a progressive coalition. Timmermans was arguing that that could be an option. Um, numbers don't work out. Uh, that by itself uh, is an issue. Um, but I also think that this is not something which many of the coalition potential partners of this progressive coalition would be ready to go for if it includes also far-left groups. Uh, no right coalition, including also some of the right-wing anti-forces, which some others had been speculating. Um, so I rather would argue that we will have, or we will, there will be an attempt to form this four-party coalition. But then, whatever coalition outcome will be there, and what kind of coalition agreement there will be there, there's a quality with respect to the, there's a question with respect to the quality, the depth, and the dur durability of that coalition agreement. How? How close will it be? How uh, how detailed will it be? And how long would it be? How long will it last? There's a lot of distrust in the European Parliament too. Uh, so coming up with a coalition agreement will be difficult in itself. And then the question is, what kind of coalition agreement are we talking about? How long will it take? Well, I already said it will take much longer than 2014. Um, I expect that there will be multiple attempts to forge a coalition. There are many actors involved in the European Parliament, but also outside the European Parliament. Uh, Corinna was already referring to uh, President Macron, to En Marche. Um, it's still questionable how they will play things out. My personal appreciation is, uh, of, of things is 
yes, they have aligned themselves um, with ALDE, but the question is how close will this alignment be? And I expect that uh, President Macron will try and ALDE and En Marche will try to be as flexible as they can, having in mind already the, the future and the long-term future, because there will be a future also uh, for uh, President Macron uh, after he will have left the Elysee. Each compromise decision will be very difficult. I already mentioned which uh, dimension I have in mind, um, but I think the most difficult and most uh, difficult issues will be, related to, will be related to the personnel, to the leadership puzzle which has to be put together, um, especially if none of the Spitzenkandidaten will become commission president. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, with respect to the election or selection of the next EU leadership, Again, we are witnessing a situation which is much more complex than the leadership puzzle uh, we were confronted with in 2014. There are five leadership positions which have to be filled. Uh, the Commission Presidency, the Presidency of the European Council, um, the HRVP, the Presidency of the European Central Bank, which was no, not in the cards last time, and obviously the Presidency of the European Parliament. Um, in 2014, Immediately after the EP elections, a decision was taken with respect to the Commission Presidency and the HRVP, um, and the European Council President was decided later on, after the summer. Um, there was no need to look for an ECB president. Um, so today, is a, it is a totally different situation. We have these five leadership positions, and there needs to be a compromise involving all of them. Last time around, EU leaders were taken by surprise of the dynamic with the Spitzenkandidaten process had taken this time, they are aware, uh, and there are also many of them very critical of the process. Um, last time around, Schulz and Juncker were standing next to each other, um, arguing and showing support for each other, also showing strong support for the Spitzenkandidaten, though we don't have that uh, clear grand coalition in place. Um, so, and so there is not the same kind of uh, media pressure which we saw five years ago. So the situation today is much different from what we witnessed um, five years ago, uh, ago, and it's very unclear also who will steer this process um, at the European and at the national level. Um, last time around, Germany and France played a key role in making sure that the leadership uh, composition, uh, that the compromise can be found. This time, the situation will be more complex. Um, also, the Liberals and Macron are, uh, have been uh, strongly against the Spitzenkandidaten process from the outset. Um, arguing that it doesn't make sense without having transnational lists, which is a valid argument, but obviously this has also a lot to do of how one gets, how much one gets from the political pie. Solving the leadership puzzle uh, will at the end depend on the decision of who will become commission president. From there on, everything else will be determined. Um, and here the Spitzenkandidaten process is playing a role. Um, the Spitzenkandidaten themselves will be involved in that process. Um, however, I think that it is rather unlikely that uh, any of the Spitzenkandidaten will become commission president. If the outcome of the coalition uh, formation in the European Parliament will be complex, and I said that it will be complex, um, that it will involve not only actors in the European Parliament, it was also, also actors at national level in the European Council, um, that increases, I think, the likelihood that that compromise will also have to be found with respect to the presidency of the European Commission. And that potentially could lead to someone else who has not been a Spitzenkandidat in becoming Commission President. With respect to Manfred Weber, um, 
DPP, as I said earlier, has a relative uh, majority in the European Parliament, but it is a thin majority. Um, if he would want, or if he, if he would aim to become, which he does, a commission president, he will require a strong support from Angela Merkel. If you listen carefully to the German Chancellor, she supported him in his role as being Spitzenkandidat in the uh, in the in the uh, in the campaign, but she never said that she would clearly support him becoming commission president. So we need to carefully listen to what she will be saying in the upcoming hours in the upcoming days. And we know that she is very supportive of strengthening the role of female in the next EU leadership puzzle. Um, so let's see how that will work out. I personally um, would not give a bet or make a bet. Um, I think the decision at the end, uh, also in the European Council, will be taken by qualified majority. Uh, I said earlier, there are often are a lot of room for surprises. Names which haven't been named might come up, um, but already the list of names is very long. So besides the Spitzenkandidaten, we hear the name of Vestager, who had not been a Spitzenkandidat, obviously, Barnier, Georgieva, and others have been mentioned. Again, I do not want to speculate uh, there are too many variables, and uh, as I said, we saw surprises also in the past. If you remember in 2014, I was, and also others, were surprised about the fact that the socialists in the end opted to want the office of the, of the HRVP, um, that the uh, conservatives in the end got the commission presidency and the European Council presidency, and that was the outcome of a bargain at the top level of the European Union. Um, with respect to the Greens, yes, they've done very well, but I do not think that their main aim will be uh, to have one representative of the Greens in that leadership puzzle. They were more strongly focused on issues related to policies. Now, the second question, the presidency of the European Council, um, that is equally open. My personal belief that is that it will be one out of the current heads of state and government in the European Council. I don't think that they will opt for someone who will polarize. Um, and I don't think that they will opt for someone who would want to be more than a chairman of the European Council. Again, we have a long list of names, no order, um, whether it's Griboskaitse, Varadka, Costa, Rasmussen, Michel, Plenkovic, all these names have been mentioned uh, with respect uh, to the presidency of the European Council. I think that we've seen too much concentration on the Commission presidency. Um, the presidency of the European Council is also very important. And the cooperation across Rue de la Loire between the Commission president and the European Council president has been be important, and I think it will be even more important in the years to come. That's why I personally believe that this decision should be taken where both the Commission presidency and the decision on who should become next president of the European Commission will be taken roughly or at the same time. With respect to the ECB presidency, because there have been a lot of speculations about that, I think that there will be a compromise between the two basic camps, the responsibility camp, those who argue that member states need to do their homework, the solidarity camp, which argue that there's need for more solidarity between member states, and that they will attempt to find a compromise when it comes to the ECB presidency, which reflects the need to build uh, a link between those two camp, and we've heard the names of some Finnish candidates, and I think that this is something which could materialize. With respect to the Spitzenkandidaten, because there have been a lot of discussions whether it is here to stay, 
I personally think that, um, yes, it is here to stay. Um, the genie is out of the bottle. The experience in 2014 was an experiment. Uh, what we're now seeing unfolding with respect to how things develop in the context of the Spitzenkandidaten process is different than it was in 2014, and I expect that it will be different in 2024 and 2029. So it is something which is there to stay. It will even survive if there is none of the Spitzenkandidaten who will become commission president. Um, but it needs to be adapted. Um, and obviously, the introduction of transnational list would be a major a major adaptation also for the Spitzenkandidaten process in future. Now let me refer to the th remaining three issues, but more briefly. Um, the determination of the next EU strategic agenda. The original timetable has foreseen that um, the June European Council would be the moment in time where a decision would be taken with respect to the strategic agenda of the European Union. I'm not sure that that timetable will be able to, uh, whether we will be able to uphold that timetable because of the need to reach these difficult compromises within the European Parliament, within the European Council, and between the European Parliament and the European Council. With respect to the content of the next uh, strategic agenda, um, if you look five years ago, uh, we had an agenda which included five rather vague points. There was no real actual discussion within the European Council about its substance. It was something which was done to please David Cameron at the time. Um, if you look today, if you look, for example, at the Sibio Declaration, I think that what we've seen has been rather disappointing in terms of the outcome of that process. Um, we have not really witnessed a strategic debate among the European heads of state and government within the European Council because this is a difficult uh, exercise giving all the differences between member states. So it's my expectation with respect to the strategic agenda of are rather low. Um, I still think that it is a worthwhile exercise, um, but at the end of the day, I don't think that much will come out of it. Um, and by the way, uh, we've seen over the past 10 years that in the, at the end of the day, there's events which determine the path of things and not the strategic agenda which is set even at the highest political level. With respect to the um, perspectives and the role of extreme nationalistic right-wing forces, uh, Corinne already talked about that. Um, if you look into the overall numbers in the European Parliament, um, they have not made that impressive victory, which some were suggesting that they might have. I think there were a lot of exaggerations over the past months of how, way they, how well they would do. There has not been this populist tsunami, as you, um, uh, as you called it, Corinna. Um, there is a strong, clear majority for pro-European forces, but in a good number of countries, they have done rather well. Um, they did well in Italy uh, with more than 30%, 33.6 out of the latest number. They did rather well in Poland. PiS did rather well, um, despite the European coalition being formed in Poland. Um, in France, um, yes, uh, Le Pen, the RN, didn't do... Um, much better than they did five years ago, but they are the first party. Um, in Belgium, uh, we see how well Flamme's Belang has done, which to some extent wasn't a surprise. And uh, about UK, it will be Fabian talking about that. But we saw what happened there. So in a good number of countries, they've done well. But in many countries, they didn't, they didn't do as well or not as well as people were thinking. In Germany, the AfD is at close to 11%. Um, indications some months ago or expectations by some whether that they will do better. 
in France, in, in sorry, in Austria, the FPÖ, following the Ibiza Gate scandal, um, has not done well, um, and the conservative ÖVP has profited from them. Um, in Spain, uh, Vox did not as well as they did in the national election some weeks ago. So there are numerous examples of where they didn't do as well, but then again, in some countries they have done well. And in those countries, especially coming from Italy, Salvini in Poland, Kaczynski in, in Hungary, Orban, um, these leaders will be arguing we are representing um, the voice of people when it comes to EU affairs. And they will be trying to push that at the European level. But again, they haven't done as well. And all those who were thinking that they would be able to form a strong coalition in the European Parliament, I think that that from the beginning was not likely to happen for a good number of reasons. Um, one is that um, the protagonists um, of these uh, right-wing anti-forces, populist forces, are very strong personalities who, uh, for them, it is not easy to cooperate, and they often are not willing to subordinate. They all follow, or many of them follow, different strategies when it comes to cooperating with mainstream parties. Uh, some are ready to go into coalitions with the so-called old establishment, other are not. They often subscribe to different policy preferences, even on issues where they have a strong concern, like on issues of migrations, where there are severe differences among them. They have a nationalistic, my country comes first attitude. So there are a good number of reasons to believe that they will not be able to form a sustainable, close coalition in the European Parliament. But then again, and I think we need to be careful, um, as I said, they did well in a good number of countries. Uh, in 2017, after, and I remember that very vividly, after the Dutch and the French elections, there were already people saying that uh, the populist uh, momentum might have been behind us. Um, there were some who were arguing um, that populism might have peaked. That what was a mistake in 2017, if you look at the election results in a good number of EU member states thereafter. So it would be a mistake now to argue um, that the populist phenomenon uh, is uh, having a is has witnessed a defeat at these EP elections. That I think would be risky. The last point with respect to the Commission College. Once a decision has been taken on who should become Commission President, then we will be in the process of building a new coalition, and that will be a more difficult process than in the past. You will have a good number of critical EU governments, four to six. We will see how many in the end they will be who will be presenting um, a good number of people to become commissioners who are critical, or maybe even more than critical, of the European Union. Um, now, I believe that the Commission will be able to manage this. Um, there are two safeguards. One is that the Commission President will be able to say no to uh, candidates which have been proposed to him or her. Uh, we've seen that happening also in recent past. If you look at um, how, uh, the, the times that Juncker said no, to candidates. Um, the European Parliament will grill these candidates and can dismiss um, some of them. I think that we will also witness that. Uh, but then, although you have these safeguards, it will be more difficult this time around. Um, and there might be some who will be slipping through, let's call it, into the next commission. And the commission will have to prepare for that. I think that the commission will be able to live up to that, um, to that challenge, even if there are more in what we, in terms of numbers uh, suggested for the Commission than in the past, the Commission machinery is able to live up to that. And there's also a way of distributing portfolios 
in a smart way, which would enable the commission to live with the fact that it will have among itself um, some commissioners which are more critical of the European Union. So this was an attempt to shed some light into what I expect in the upcoming weeks and months. I hope it did shed some light on some of the issues in general. If I conclude, I think that um, EU business in the next five years will not be easier. For all those who think it will be, I don't think that it will be easier. Um, I have been for a while speaking of a battle of split camps, which we're witnessing in the European Union. I can't, on the one hand, the illiberal liberal uh, camps, but also divisions within the individual camps. And I think we're seeing that increasingly also in the so-called liberal camp, and also the differences between Germany and France um, indicate in that direction. So uh, we have a lot of fragmentation and distrust between member states, also fragmentation within our parliaments. We have a lot of polarization within our member states. And I think that it will undermine the ability of the EU to deal with future storms. And if future storms come, it could even increase that level of fragmentation between member states and polarization within member states. So even though I think there are a good number of positive news coming out of the European Parliament elections, um, I think we should still be worried in terms of how the EU will be able to cope with some of the structural challenges which it is facing and will be continued to face in the years to come. Thank you, Janis. Um, so, as, as I said, uh, I will say a few words about the UK. Um, but before I do that, I, I want to make two broad comments. One um, is something which I think is a scandal um, that we have seen that voters uh, in some countries have been disenfranchised, um, either by accident or by design. Um, but it cannot be that we have a democratic election where people who have the intention to vote are unable to do so. Um, and I think that is something we need to look at for the next EP elections. Uh, certainly for those of you who uh, either saw or actually experienced the queues in front of the Romanian embassy or uh, who had the experience in the UK of um, seeing their names struck off an electoral list, this is something I think we need to make sure um, does not happen again. Um, my second comment uh, is uh, something which I haven't heard very much about, but I'm very interested to see whether there is more information out there, and that's the question of the influence of fake news of um, third countries in how far we have actually seen uh, the kind of thing we have seen uh, in other countries in national elections um, or in referenda before. Uh, did this play a role? Uh, we know that in some countries um, certain parties have received money um, from dubious sources, but is this an overall thing? How far did we have an influence? Um, and I haven't seen very much on that. Um, on the UK, um, clearly the result was to some extent uh, expected. Uh, we had uh, the Brexit party doing uh, very well not only picking up uh, the UKIP vote, uh, which uh, went down um, quite dramatically, but also picking up some more uh, voters who were dissatisfied. Uh, when you take the Brexit party uh, and UKIP together, we're now talking about more than a third of those who voted 
voting for parties which uh, stand for a no deal. Um, but we also had um, an increase uh, on the Remain side. Uh, the Lib Dems uh, did rather well. Um, they are now in the peculiar situation of having more MEPs than MPs. Um, we also had a search uh, for the Greens. Um, together, the Remain parties uh, have around 40% of the vote. Uh, and then um, we have uh, the parties, uh, the well, uh, previously you would have said the two big parties, but in this case, they are no longer the two big parties. Uh, the Labour Party had um, a bad night. Um, it uh, certainly uh, had a bad night um, also regionally when you look at Scotland. Uh, the SNP uh, took three seats out of the six. Uh, Labour did not get any seat. Um, but across the UK, uh, Labour did very badly. Um, and most people attributed that to uh, the um, uncertain stance uh, on uh, Brexit, uh, including a number of Labour candidates who afterwards said, well, this was because Labour was not the Remain Party, even though they campaigned on Labour being a Remain Party. Um, so this is a big question now for Labour. Where does Labour go uh, from here? Uh, does it decide to go towards um, a stronger endorsement of a second referendum? Um, does it uh, campaign for a revoke? Uh, or will it try to maintain this ambiguity which has characterized uh, its stance up to now? Um, but if Labour did badly, the Conservatives did disastrously, um, slipping below uh, two figures. Um, we are talking about uh, a major, um, if not unprecedented, uh, defeat uh, for the Conservative Party, um, with clearly the stance on Brexit um, being the main issue uh, why they were losing uh, this amount of votes. Um, the Conservatives did not come first in any uh, of the regions, uh, in any of the local authorities across the UK. That's quite uh, a disastrous result. Um, so what uh, lesson will the Conservatives draw from that? Um, if you look at the discussions uh, which already happened um, during the night, then the lesson seems to be that the Conservatives have concluded that the only way they can recover those votes is by being stronger on Brexit, by carrying it through, uh, and by not uh, allowing a second referendum. That would indicate that uh, the new Prime Minister is likely to be Eurosceptic. Um, there are a number of candidates lining up, um, but certainly there are very few non-Eurosceptics, uh, which seem to be uh, in the lineup. Um, but then comes the big question of what uh, such a new uh, Prime Minister, if they even get the votes in the House of Commons, which is not necessarily the case, uh, can do. Um, so we're talking about um, a new Prime Minister with uh, what he or she will see as a mandate to renegotiate the deal uh, with the European Union. Uh, which will fail. Um, so what we are talking about really is um, a crunch point in October, um, which 
uh, I think many people didn't expect to happen, um, but we're talking about a situation where either uh, we're moving towards no deal or, um, and that's, I think, um, in my view, the only other way out is that uh, the conservatives decide that there has to be a general election. Uh, I think that will be the big question um, for autumn, but it certainly um, doesn't mean uh, that we have a clear way forward on the Brexit process. Uh, I think the uncertainty, the instability uh, will continue. That also means that we have uh, a certain amount of uncertainty uh, on uh, the European Parliament composition itself. Um, if the UK leaves, uh, there will be a change also in the majorities within uh, the European Parliament. The uh, key thing is not only that uh, you lose the 29 Brexit Party uh, uh, MEPs, but also um, when you look at the combination of um, liberal democrats, of greens, um, nationalists uh, and of labor, um, then that's quite a big chunk uh, which is being lost from those three groups. Uh, it's almost 40 uh, MEPs between them. Where's the EPP? Because uh, the conservatives haven't been sitting with the EPP in any case, uh, wouldn't be affected in the same way. Um, that doesn't uh, quite capture the overall picture because mm. um, a number of the seats would also have to be reallocated. So the majorities will shift a, um, a, a little bit unpredictably. And so far, I've not seen any uh, real figures on how those seats would be redistributed. So I would be interested if anyone has them. Uh, but certainly it means uh, that uh, the EPP would have a stronger position uh, post-Brexit uh, than uh, it has at the moment. So uh, the MEPs will continue to influence uh, the overall outcomes within the parliament. If there is a um, super grand coalition um, for issues, will rely also on the UK votes. And that then raises questions on if they uh, manage to push the vote in one way or the other what that means in terms of legitimacy after the UK uh, has left. So that's all really I wanted to say on the UK for the moment. Um, but let me just briefly go back to Corinna and Yanis um, with a couple of questions on some of the more national picture. Um, uh, maybe, Yanis, um, if you could say a couple of words uh, on Germany and in particular on the poor showing of the SPD and um, is that symptomatic for the European left? Or should we be more looking at Timmermans and what happened there? Um, also, maybe a couple of words on Greece and the general election uh, coming up there. Corinna, maybe a couple of words on Romania. Um, and also uh, on Italy, what does the decline for the Five Star Movement uh, mean for the rest of Europe? Yes, um, with respect to Germany. Well, the biggest um, news from the, as we all know, from the German election result is the uh, magnificent um, result from the perspective of the Greens. Um, they have done extremely well, probably uh, even better than they had themselves expected. Um, they are uh, clearly uh, the second biggest party after the CDU-CSU. Um, the CDU-CSU has um, lost. I think that they also 
lost a good number of voters, especially among the youth over the past week. Um, for all those of you who follow uh, German politics, um, there was a young YouTuber who uh, created a video uh, which has been viewed more than 10 million times, being very critical of the CDU CSU. I think that that did cost them some votes. Um, so the CDU CSU didn't do well either. Um, and the ones who did worst um, is um, the SPD. Um, they have again uh, performed very badly. Um, it is a structural problem which they're witnessing, so this is not something which is related to the EP elections. Um, whether this is symptomatic, um, I don't think that you could make that judgment because it's not only in the case uh, of the Netherlands where the socialists did rather well, so there are also other cases uh, in a good number of EU countries, including also, for example, in Spain, um, where socialists uh, have done rather well. Um, so in the, in the German case, um, the SPD um, seems to be in a situation where they do not know how to exit um, the situation which they have themselves also partially maneuver themselves. Um, there are some who speculate that that might even have an effect on the Grand Coalition. I don't think that that will be the case, um, given that the SPD would, has no interest now in having a new round of elections in Germany. That's something they would clearly uh, want to avoid. Um, in the Greek case, um, um, this has been a, an EP election where actually it was all about uh, national issues. It was about the question uh, of who uh, will be able to uh, n win the next national vote and when that would take place. Um, I think the fact that um, the difference between uh, Syriza, between Tsipras and the conservative Nea Demokratia the fact that the difference uh, was now at roughly 9% is something which has now pushed Syriza uh, and Tsipras uh, to have an earlier election date than uh, after the summer break. So we will have elections um, at the end of June in Greece. And all the indications are that um, uh, there will be a change of government in the country. Um, Tsipras tried um, to avert a negative result in these elections um, also by providing um, uh, a lot of support for his voters and for potential voters, um, also financial support, um, but that uh, didn't work out. So he lost these elections. There will be um, election in June, and you will have a change of government. If you witnessed, uh, for those who are witnessing Greek politics, if you witnessed uh, the press conference of Tsipras, uh, when he announced that there would be early elections, you could see also that he was himself somewhat shocked of the, of the election result. I think that he thought that, yes, uh, Syriza would lose, that he would vote lose, but that the difference would not be that big. But it was not, the European Parliament election in Greece was not about European issues, clearly not. Um, well, results uh, are still... Uh, coming in and I didn't get to look at everything, but uh, um, I, I maybe would like to make two remarks regarding to uh, some of the things that you said and then I'll come back to your question. Uh, indeed, uh, I, I also want to emphasize the, uh, um, the, the, the prob the how problematic the, um, s the way some of the, some, some countries, including Romania, have dealt with, uh, um, with the diaspora vote. Um, uh, 
I can confirm yesterday I queued for uh, almost five hours uh, uh, together with colleagues uh, who've been there for six or more uh, uh, waiting to, uh, to get in and uh, exercise our, our right. And I should specify, in fact, that this is not the first time that it's happening. Last time around for the presidential elections, I actually didn't get the chance to... Uh, um, to vote because the the, the section cl uh, the, the voting uh, section closed before uh, uh, we arrived um, uh, at the door. So uh, so th this is definitely an issue. It's something that it's uh, it has been repeating uh, and uh, uh, something uh, for which the government, uh, the incumbent government, uh, has no incentive to uh, to address, since uh, most of the uh, foreign uh, vote uh, is is normally. Uh, uh, against uh, the, the 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 leading forces uh, at home, um, uh, unfortunately, and uh, we were talking about this yesterday while while waiting. And by the way, I think uh, so. I, I managed to get to vote around seven o'clock. The the um, the uh, permanent rep uh, the well, it's it, we had eight. Um, um, sections foreseen for where people could vote, but uh, given that there are about 40,000 Romanians, uh, uh, um, you do the math. It's not, it's not that easy to, uh, to go through and with, uh, with, with how slowly the process generally happens. Um, but um, what I wanted to say when I was, we were also discussing yesterday is that in fact, uh, to a certain extent, it's probably also our fault because we get very frustrated, very annoyed on the, uh, on the day and, uh, and maybe uh, shortly after, but then uh, we kind of uh, l let it go. So, so I guess uh, more pressure has to be put also from, uh, uh, from, from our side and we, we, we really need to, uh, to press that the change happens next time around. But the good news with the Romanians, I don't have the exact numbers uh, now, is that uh, you might be aware that uh, the elections happened at the same time with a referendum in which uh, citizens were asked about uh, um, their opinion on whether um, the, the, the government's uh, attempt to, uh, to play with, uh, um, with the, the rule of law in order to uh, let uh, some of the uh, corruption cases fall through uh, should be um, permitted or not, and uh, whether um, ordinary uh, emergency ordinary uh, ordinances should um, uh, should be uh, the, the practice of emergency ordinance emergency ordinances should be stopped and. Um, both the referendum as well as the results in the Romanian case really uh, have been a protest vote and a, um, excuse my French, a big middle finger because this was the slogan of the, of the, of the campaign uh, to, uh, to the incumbent government. So in that sense, it, uh, it, 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 it has been, a, a, let's say, a, a short victory or a, a little victory, but a step forward in, uh, in terms of shaking up a little bit the, uh, the political um, uh, establishment at home and uh, hopefully injecting some new energy. Uh, there are new forces uh, that have done well and hopefully uh, with people and young people who have experience for, um, also in the European Parliament and in, uh, um, in Brussels. So, so, so hopefully uh, uh, the, the, the future will, uh, will, will look brighter. Um, and hopefully these results will also have spillover effect for um, uh, uh, elections and political developments at the national level uh, um, in the country. Uh, with the uh, Movimento Cinque Stelle, uh, I don't have the, the exact uh, numbers, but of course uh, uh, the, it's... Um, um, Alliance with uh, the, the the Brexit party and in the EFDD uh, uh, remains to to be seen, and that could uh, a little bit uh, uh, 
um, be uh, be a question for uh, what happens after the UK leaves, if it leaves, but also uh, for for whether um, the uh, Cinque Stelle will orient themselves in in the direction of other parties uh, with with which to form uh, um, uh, coalitions in the in, in in the next period. So so that remains to be seen. The other thing I wanted to uh, to, to to refer to is your comment about uh, the the media and fake news and just to um, mention again a, uh, a poll that I saw last night. Uh, uh, they've, they've looked at which uh, uh, political leaders and parties have been most successful on social media, including Twitter and uh, um, uh, Facebook and, and uh, Salvini, as well as Farage, has been uh, at the top of it. So um, in that sense, uh, um, well, uh, I call it campaigning or propaganda <laughs> has uh, has worked at least in uh, in uh, in their cases. Now, whether external influences have played a role, uh, I've uh, I've been joking lately because I mean uh, we we often say uh, speak about uh, alliances of these parties with uh, with Russia and the close links. But uh, I wonder if the if if that was true and if indeed uh, um, these parties uh, uh, were really. Um, really had close relationships with uh, um, with Russia whether the uh, the case uh, that happened in Austria really would have taken place we'll continue our analysis of the fallout of the election results in the days and weeks to come including in this podcast until then over and out <laughs>